Uh, Please turn with me, if you will, once again to the book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 8. Daniel comes right after Ezekiel. Middle right of your Bible. Daniel chapter 8. We're continuing in our series entitled The Gospel According to Daniel. It's page 856 if you're using a pew Bible. Last week we began the difficult part of Daniel. The prophecies and the dreams that, um, and visions that mark the last six chapters here. And I argued last week when we looked at chapter 7 that the four beasts that arise in chapter 7 uh, present kind of a cyclical um, outlook upon the rise and fall of nations. It's fairly generic in some sense. Uh, Well, now in chapter 8, the focus actually narrows. Um, This prophecy in 8 speaks of very specific kings and kingdoms. And the focus isn't necessarily uh, upon the world at large. Uh, Rather, this chapter focuses more specifically on God's people, God's worship. Another way we know this is because here in chapter 8, um, there's a shift back to the he- Hebrew language. Uh, if you didn't know, but chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7, are written in Aramaic. Uh, it's way out of the ordinary uh, for the Old Testament. There's only one other small, very small portion of the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic. Hebrew was the sacred language of the Jews. That's what distinguished them. That was the only language proper for communicating the things of God. But Daniel writes in Aramaic to kind of illustrate just how immersed the Jews were in that pagan Gentile culture, uh, but also because chapters 2, verse 7 primarily concern Gentile nations. Chapter 8 on focuses narrowly to Israel, the people of God. So with this in mind then, let's look then at chapter 8. We're going to read the entire chapter. Another vision, another dream of Daniel, the prophet of the Lord. Let's read, and we will pray for God's blessing upon the preaching. Daniel 8, this is God's word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, when I, when, when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is the providence of Elam, and I saw in the vision... And I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one horn was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before it, and there was no one who could rescue from its power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as, as I was considering, behold... A male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. 
Out of the one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and hosts would begin over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and hosts to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, and the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others rose, four kingdoms shall arise from his power, but not with, but not with his power. Excuse me, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me again. Oh, Father, we pray that you would remove the blinders from our eyes, that we might, through the gift of your spirit, drink deeply of your eternal truth that is found in your word. Help us to know your word. Help us, like Daniel, to understand it. Send the Spirit like you sent Gabriel to give us the interpretation, Lord, that we might not just be hearers, but doers of your word. Oh Lord, answer and visit us, we pray, through Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, it's no accident that Daniel begins this vision by noting the specific date in which he received the vision. Verse 1 says, It was in the third year of the reign 
of King Belshazzar. Do you remember the story of Belshazzar back in chapter 5? Do you remember the, the big drunken party? Uh, the handwriting on the wall? The judgment of God? The sudden overthrow of Babylon that we saw there? Remember, as I've argued, the visions in the last half of the chapter um, are, are interpreted in some respect or foreshadowed by the narrative in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. In other words, the stories help us interpret the visions to come. So it's no surprise here that Daniel mentions Belshazzar. Because what happened in chapter 5 is, uh, is but a foreshadowing of what we see here in chapter 8. Chapter 5 recounts the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire. Well, here in chapter 8, this vision speaks of the nation that overthrew Babylon and what happened next. In chapter 5, there is a king, Belshazzar, who desecrates the holy vessels of the temple. He uses them for pagan worship. And here in chapter 8, verse 11, there's another king who overthrows what is holy to the Lord, the sanctuary, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he uses it for pagan worship. In chapter 5, when Belshazzar violates what is holy to the Lord, a hand, of a hand just appearing on the wall, sent from heaven, brings judgment. That's here too. Another evil king who will be broken, we read, but by no human hand, verse 25, implying that there is a divine hand sent from heaven that will overthrow him as well. You see, when we understand the connections between chapter 5 and chapter 8, Daniel's um, boldness and faithfulness back in chapter 5 come into greater focus. Think about it. How could Daniel be so bold as to stand before Belshazzar, the ruler of the world at that time, and announce judgment to come? How could he stand before this all-powerful king who could cut him to pieces if he wanted to and say to him, as we read in chapter 5, Belshazzar, the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored? How could he say that? How could he announce the judgment to come? Because he'd already received the vision of this chapter. In a very real sense, Daniel saw the divine handwriting on the wall. In other words, the point I'm trying to make, Daniel's faithfulness in times of difficulty was because he believed God's word. It's really that simple. He believed God's word. And brethren, that's the same question, part of the same question, that is before us today here in chapter 8. The question of, will you believe God's Word? Will you believe what God has revealed about human and redemptive history? And will you, through this belief in God's Word, stand boldly and confidently and faithfully as a witness, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of persecution, clinging closely to your God and His Word? That's part of the question that's before us today. See, last week we looked at these four beasts 
And I argued that they presented a, a kind of broad pattern of the rise and fall of kingdoms. And I think if we're honest, when we hear that, we think about that, we might be tempted to think, is this, how is this really true? All the beasts and all the horns and all the heads and all the eyes. I mean, it sounds a bit mythological, doesn't it? A little bit too much you know, science fiction for us. A little too much fanatical. Well, right on the heels of that here in chapter 8, we now get unmistakable details and specifics. It's almost as if the Lord knows our weakness and how we often struggle to believe His Word. And so He sends us confirmation that what He says will take place. Because when we look at this chapter, there's no doubt that uh, the exploits of Alexander the Great and uh, Antiochus IV are detailed here. They are detailed hundreds of years before those men lived and acted. God told Daniel long beforehand what would happen. Daniel believed that and he ordered his life around it. And that's the question before us today as well. How will you respond to what God has revealed beforehand? Will you believe God's word even if it doesn't seem to align with present circumstances? Will you look at history through the lens of God's Word, recognizing that uh, the patterns that God has woven into history in order to teach us and warn us and comfort us? Will you embrace the reality that history is not out of control, but it's being carefully orchestrated by a loving God? Will you acknowledge and understand that although evil will prosper, even up until the end, it will not end? Suffering comes before glory for God's people. Those are some of the things that this chapter confronts us today. Because here we see God giving us assurance, not just that He is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, but also that He is sovereign over your life as well. For the good and in the bad. Two main things then that we're going to see today, just two points, and we're going to spend most of our time on the first point. What do we see first? We see that history is an outworking of God's eternal plan. History is but an outworking of God's eternal plan. As we dive into this vision, uh, first note that it takes place at a specific location. The last chapter, I said, was generic. Talked about rise and fall of kingdoms. It was in an undefined location. But here, Daniel is transported in his vision to Susa, the citadel, the province of Elam at the Ulai Canal. And what's significant about this is that it was a citadel. It was the capital of the Persian Empire. This tells us right away, Daniel's out of Babylon. The vision doesn't concern Babylon, doesn't concern your present circumstances, it's focused elsewhere. And just like the vision from before though, animals provide the imagery of this vision. Although another note we might make is that the picture here is decidedly less sinister. Uh, It's not lions and bears and leopards, rather we see a ram and a goat. A ram and a goat, to the Hebrews, those were clean animals. Not like the savage beasts of chapter 7. So right away we ought to recognize that we don't have the imagery of evil nations arising from the underworld. 
Rather, we just have a picture of strong nations, of powerful nations. Uh, They're not portrayed as particularly good or bad. They're just nations of the common kingdom. Every nation, in some sense, is powerful. That's how they become a nation. So a ram and a goat, and and this ram and the goat, they have horns. That that signifies their strength and and their power. And, of course, they come into conflict with one another as well. Uh, One breaks the other one. And, again, uh, a a general picture of the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms. It marks every earthly kingdom. They rise and they fall. That's the cyclical pattern of history. But first, let's consider this ram in verse 3. Stands on the bank of the Persian Canal. It had two horns. Uh, down in verse 20, we're told that the ram represents uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the two horns then signify the two nations and their balance of power. Remember, um, I mentioned a moment ago, back in chapter 5, we saw the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire by the Persians, the Medo-Persians. This then depicts that event before it happened. This then is why Daniel can say back in chapter 5, verse 28, Belshazzar, the Medo-Persian Empire is going to overthrow you, which happened that very night. So in overthrowing Babylon, uh, this empire became the dominating superpower of the world. In verse 4, we see how the ram charged west and north and south. From a Jewish perspective, they already dominated the East. And we know from history that this empire would uh, achieve conquest in Turkey and Babylon and in Greece. We know that for 200 years, they ruled the world that no one could stand against them. They did as they pleased and they became great. As it says here in verse 4, God told Daniel all of this beforehand. But while the ram became great, suddenly a male goat appears on the scene. Uh, Verse 5, it became exceedingly great, we're told. Goats are more powerful than sheep. They can be fierce, even. Uh, I remember when my daughter Annabelle was uh, maybe one and a half, two years old. Uh, We took her to the Chattanooga Zoo, and they had this little petting area with small goats baby goats and sheep. And, and let me tell you, we, we learned our lesson. <laughs> um, one of those little tiny goats didn't like tottering little Annabelle. And she was just standing there and he backed up and lowered his head and charged and just flattened her. Um, it was sad. We actually got it on video. It was horrific. It's like, I know, I know. Uh, you can hear Courtney scream. It's, I felt like I was watching it in slow motion because I was helpless to react. As soon as I saw him backing up, I'm like, no. Um, there were a lot of tears, but thankfully she wasn't injured, seriously. But it's horrifying to watch, um, given how tiny she was. Goats can be fierce, even baby goats. They can be aggressive, and, and that's part of the picture here. This is a charging goat that comes out of the West. It says that, that uh, the feet don't touch the ground. This is power and speed. It's just flattening everything that stands in its way. And it's, it's a unicorn of some sorts. It has one horn coming out of his head. Uh, we read that it came to the bank of the canal in Persian. It charged the ram with powerful wrath, and it broke its two horns. The ram then, the, the Medo-Persian empire, was thrown down. 
and the goat became the ruler of the world. Uh, Even without the angel's explanation down in verse 21, if we read this through the lens of history, it's very clear that this refers to the exploits of Alexander the Great. In just four years, he had demolished the entire Persian Empire. And the speed and ferocity in which he swept across the world and conquered the whole known world before he even turned 33, it's aptly uh, captured in this image. Hundreds of years before he lived, Daniel says here that he became exceedingly great in verse 8. Isn't it amazing how he lived up to his name and even took that name, Alexander the Great? His fame and his exploits are unparalleled, even in our day. I I think the goat is an appropriate figure for him. He is definitely the goat, the greatest of all time. Um, The guy who conquered the world. But just like God foretold, when he was strong, verse 8, the horn was broken. We know that at the height of his power, after he had conquered the world, right after he conquered the world, he got a fever and he died right before his 33rd birthday. What happened then? The text says that when the great horn was broken, there came up four horns in its place. History shows that when Alexander the Great died, he left his empire to be divided up um, among his four generals. And that from these four generals, four kingdoms emerged out of the territory that he conquered. Just as the text says here. But it's only one of those kingdoms that this vision is concerned with. Verse 9. The little horn becomes the focus of this chapter. Not Alexander the Great. He's a footnote in history. In God's history. It isn't Persia or Greece or the goat conqueror of the world that's really important. Evil um, earthly kingdoms, I should say, always rise and fall. They, They always have and they always will. But this horn receives the focus because this horn attacks the people of God. In the name of God. Without question, this little horn refers to Antiochus IV. You can look him up on Wikipedia if you want. Antiochus is famous in Jewish history because it was his persecution that led to the Maccabean Revolt. Um, You you know the the celebration of Hanukkah? You see the, the candle, you see it around Christmas time. Hanukkah is a celebration or a remembrance, a festival um, around Christmas time that honors the Jewish revolt to Antiochus. So, to put it lightly, Antiochus was a fierce tyrant. In verse 9, we read that he grew exceedingly great toward the glorious land. It's a term used in Scripture to refer to the land of Israel. Uh, At that time, the land of Israel was the land of God's covenant people. It was the Holy Land. In verse 10, we read that this horn grew so great that it it was able to throw down some of the stars. You could throw down, as we often say. Uh, What are the throw down some of the stars? What does that mean? Uh, It could refer to kings. Kings are often in Scripture um, talked about as uh, stars or imagery for kings. Uh, It could refer to the Jewish people. Uh, God told Abraham, your descendants would be as many as the stars of heaven. I I understand this more likely as a metaphor describing how Antiochus waged war against heaven itself. 
We see waging war against God's holy land and God's holy people is the same as waging war against God himself. And so he threw down some of the stars signifies that some of his success in throwing down and slaughtering the people of God. This is similar to the Babylonian king in uh, Isaiah 14. There we read that he boasted, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. Antiochus also made himself out to be prince of hosts, verse 11, as God himself. Antiochus entitled himself, King Antiochus, God Manifest, or the illustrious God Manifest. He he definitely had a deity complex. In verse 11 and 12, we read, we read that he took away the burnt offerings. He overthrew the sanctuary, the temple. He throws truth to the ground, so he will act and prosper, we read there. Now remember the Jews at this point of the vision, or at this point in history, uh, they're back in Israel, they'd rebuilt the temple. Um, but when Antiochus came in, he sought to turn Jerusalem into a Greek city. We know from history that he renamed the temple of the Lord as the temple of Zeus. He placed the statue of Zeus up in the Holy of Holies. He forced the Jews to sacrifice humans in the Holy of Holies and even a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies. Ultimate blasphemy. He stole furnishings out of the temple. He forbid Sabbath observance and the observance of Old Testament feasts. He forced Jews to eat pork on the pain of death. He forbid circumcision and anyone who was found that was circumcised was executed. So Jewish men back then actually tried and successfully at times reversed their circumcision because they didn't want to die. We read here that he also threw truth to the ground. History shows that he tore up and burned copies of the Old Testament and he put anyone to death Anyone who had a possession of it to death. Throwing truth to the ground probably is a a metaphor as well for how he just reversed everything. Called good, evil, right, wrong, and just, unjust. Used the worship and sacrifices and system um, uh, of God for his pagan idolatry. We read in verse 23 that he is a king of bold face, one who understands riddles. This uh, speaks to how he was fierce. Uh, We might say someone's hard-nosed. Someone's um, determined. And so in this respect, he was unflappable in his pursuit of evil. He understood riddles. Uh, That could refer to maybe uh, demonic influence, an agent of Satan. Or perhaps it could refer to how he knows and delights in evil by personal experience. It's not a theory to him. But notice in verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Not by his own power. It's like the Spirit of God stops right here, Daniel. And reminds him and reminds us, He doesn't do this through the strength of his own hand. Everything that he has is given to him from above. Brethren, evil evil men 
and tyrants who kill the people of God are firmly under the sovereign control of God. The rise of evil Antiochus comes from the Lord. Just like in chapter 7 last week, it was the heaven that stirred up the four beasts. But 24, verse 24, again, he shall destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Antiochus slaughtered the people of God. At one point he came into the city and killed 40,000 Jews in three days. Verse 25, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. This is uh, aligning him with Satan, the great deceiver. He is an agent of Satan. He makes deceit, the great deceiver, prosper. And in his own mind, in his own mind, he shall become great, believing the lie of Satan. You shall become like God. Verse 25, without warning, he shall destroy many. Uh, his first attack on the Jews was entirely unexpected. He, he acted as, as if he was their friend. And when they kind of like let their guard down, he slaughtered them without warning. But at the end, finally, it comes in verse 25. He shall be broken, but by no human hand. Antiochus was not overthrown. Antiochus and his kingdom were not conquered by another. Rather, he died a very untimely death of bowel disease. Sounds lovely, right? At age 51. Death by no human hand. Just like Belshazzar, a divine hand appears and brings him down. Just like with Belshazzar, it's a loosening of his bowels that is his downfall. There are no coincidences in God's decree and plan of history. But to sum up of what everything Daniel sees here, but what happens at the end of this vision? Um, well, in verse 13, Daniel overhears two angels talking, and, and they express a lament. How long? It's a lament of the Psalms. It's a lament of the saints under the throne in Revelation 6. How long? Even the heavenly beings are concerned with God's people and God's glory. Heaven and earth are linked. When God's people hurt, heaven hurts. It's just noteworthy how, you know, the angelic host. Don't just throw their hands up and say, God is sovereign. He's ordained it all, so it's just all going to happen. No, they lament. They want to know how long. It hurts them. It's like Daniel at the end. He, He was sick for some days at hearing this. He was overcome with grief, even though he knows that God brought it to pass. How long will this last? Well, the, uh, the answer in verse 14 is 2,300 evening and mornings. And uh, just truth be you known, we're not exactly sure what this means. It could be 2,300 days. It could be 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices. Uh, the problem is that none of our historical records really line up exactly. Uh, although there are some claim who, who make claims that, that it fits. Um, it's hard because historical records aren't exactly precise to the day. Uh, back then, at least. I rather interpret this symbolically. Every, every other number in Daniel is symbolic. 
And, and so I believe we should read this as um, the period of suffering has a definite and limited duration. That's how we should understand it. How long does it last? God has evil on a leash. God has a precise calendar and is accurate to the day. That's what's important. This will not go on forever. Thus following the death of Antiochus, the Jews engaged in a long revolt, eventually led to the cleansing and rededication of the temple. At the end of verse 14, that's when the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place, state. To get back to the main point at hand, brethren, I want you to see that God predicts and ordains the rise and fall of nations. Even the persecution of His own people in detail hundreds of years before it happened. In fact, you know that this chapter is one reason why many say that Daniel must be a a forgery of some sort. The liberal uh, scholars across the board discredit the book of Daniel as being written in the uh, 6th century. They instead uh, uh, put it in the the, uh, 6th century B.C., uh, to, to the first century because they say there's no way that someone can know these details ahead of time. Thus, it's proof that this is um, a forgery. Daniel didn't actually write it. But if you believe the Scriptures, if you believe Daniel is a historical person, if you believe the dates in this book, we know that hundreds of years before these things took place, Daniel wrote this down. It teaches us that God ordains History. It teaches us that no matter what happens in history, God is in control. He is the one who gives kings and kingdoms their power. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He is the one who has numbered their days. No matter how evil a king may be, no matter how evil a kingdom may be, don't you see the rams and goats of this world are all under the control of the divine shepherd? So the question again, I'll return to, will you believe God's Word? It's a simple question. There's life and death in that question. Will you believe God's Word? Will you believe that what God says about the future will come to pass? You know, we look at this and we say, well, all that's all taken place. That's great. But brother, there's a lot of stuff in Scripture that is still future to us. There's a lot of stuff in Scripture that God has told us what will happen. The Bible says there's the day when Jesus Christ will return to this earth and every eye will see Him. The Bible says that there is a day when when the, the earth will pass away with a roar and that everything that you've worked for and accomplished and gathered in your life will burn. The Bible says that there is a day when we will all stand before God and give an account to Him for every word, thought, and deed. The Bible says that there is a day coming that though weeping will tarry for the night, joy will come in the morning. The Bible says that there is coming a day when those who trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ When they stand before the throne, Christ will step in and argue on the basis of His blood and His life for your vindication if you are in Christ. 
Bible says that there is a day coming when every tear and every sorrow and every pain will be gone. Do you believe that? One reason why God reveals the future to Daniel and shows us that is so that we will know that what God says about our future will come to pass. So that we might be armed, like Daniel, with boldness and confidence and faithfulness to speak to our dark and confused aged. To stand firm when we are put under the fire. To arm ourselves with hope and the sovereignty and the goodness of God even when life falls apart around us. Romans 8.28 God works all things for our good and for His glory. Daniel 8 teaches and shows us that that is true. But there's more to this. And with this second point, we will work toward a conclusion. Following the fact that history is an outworking of God's eternal plan, we see secondly that history is also a pattern of God's redemptive plan. History is a pattern of God's redemptive plan. We learn about God by looking at history. It's an aspect of natural revelation, natural law. Right? We know that God punishes evil when evil men are suddenly judged, for example. History, then, is a pattern of God's redemptive plan. Uh, in verse 15 through 19, we read that Daniel didn't understand the vision, and so Gabriel comes and explains it to him. Um, for us, we don't really need that because, you know, Daniel lived before those times. We live on the other side of history. We can look back and we can see how all this came to pass. But let me just say this, and I hope this goes without saying, that we can know all the historical details and yet miss all the spiritual or redemptive details, which is what's important. What we need to see, the interpretation that we need by the Spirit of God, we need to see that there are patterns in history that teach us about the spiritual war that we are engaged in as well. For one thing, I hope it's easy for you to see how Antiochus illustrates the evil and power of spiritual um, um, forces that are arrayed against God and His people. I said this before, to attack God's place of worship and God's people and God's rule over the lives of His people is to attack God Himself. There were supernatural realities behind the Jewish sanctuary and the sacrifices in the worship. Whether he knew it or not, Antiochus was part of this ancient plan of Satan to stamp out the name and the worship of God. He wanted to wipe Yahweh off the map. And brethren, that's always Satan's plan, isn't it? Even in our day. Even in our day. And it's amazing when we see that. You know, kings and kingdoms fall. They will always rise and fall. Some will be evil. Some will be tolerable. But I've said this before. The mark of a nation that will be judged by God is that they persecute the people of God and the worship of God. When a king or a kingdom, they can descend into all sorts of evil. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah is not a paradigm for, for human history. I heard Billy Graham say one day, um, well, if God shows mercy to America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, no, I, I disagree with that. 
Because Sodom and Gomorrah is an inbreaking of the final judgment to show us what the final judgment will be like. It's not a paradigm for human history. There are evil nations, more evil than them, that have prospered for, for hundreds and maybe even longer of years. No, the mark of a nation that is under divine judgment is when they turn against the church because when they do, that's when judgment is inevitable. It's a pattern of history. But another related to this This pattern of Antiochus turning against the church reflects how Satan always turns against the church. He took the sacrifices away. Well, that meant for the Jews that they had no sin offering, thus no sin. No blood for forgiveness. No atonement. No reconciliation with God under that old covenant system, typologically. What do we see in our day? Well, salvation by works. Self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, legalism. You don't need a savior. You don't need atonement. You're adequate. You're good and perfect just in, in and of yourself. I'm reminded here of the social gospel, the, a liberal gospel, as one person put it. What is the liberal social gospel? A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the assistance of a Christ without a cross. Other than that, gospel is all over our nation today. That's akin to taking the sacrifices away. It's a satanic gospel. You are good in and of yourself. You don't need blood. You don't need atonement. Sadly, sometimes in our sin and guilt, don't we also just leave off Christ and Him crucified? Forget it. We live as though we are the center of our lives, as if our works are what's most important, as if our works are are the basis of our standing before God. It's to put Christ and Him crucified on the back burner. It's to take away the burnt offerings. Satan always works to devalue or take away Christ and Him crucified, either explicitly in the liberal gospel or implicitly by putting it on the back burner, by subtraction, by just totally deny it, or even by addition. Oh, it's Christ plus something. It's Christ plus your good works. It's Christ plus your worship. It's Christ plus your good deeds. Satan's tactics also seen here and how Antiochus overthrew the Lord's sanctuary. Well, what's the Lord's sanctuary in the New Covenant? What's the ultimate reality that it pointed to? What's the New Covenant temple of the Lord? Look to your neighbor. It's the church. Satan always works to divide the church, to bring division in the church. Satan always works in any way to overthrow the sanctuary of the Lord, to overthrow the church. And he does this uh, in so many ways. Division, false doctrine, sin. Satan's tactic is seen in Antiochus casting truth to the ground. Again, false doctrine, empty worship, legalistic worship. Legalism in the Christian life. The prosperity gospel. Man-centered worship. Man-centered doctrine. Throw truth to the ground. The scriptures, they're unimportant. They're outdated. 
or they're insufficient. We need something more. I'm even struck here where, where, you know, in this idea of calling good evil and evil good, think of how so many in the professing church today, so many professing Christians say things like homosexuality is normal and should be celebrated. Abortion is health care. Sexual activity outside of marriage is healthy. It's wise. Men are women. Women are men. Everyone's a victim. Science and progress and the right medication can fix all your problems and meet all your needs. Brethren, the, the outward form has changed, but, but Antiochus shows us there's nothing new under the sun. This is a pattern for how Satan and evil wage war against Christ, His Gospel, and His church. To continue on this point, the historical uh, uh, pattern of Antiochus also foreshadows the last day and the Antichrist who will come in the end because Paul in 2 Thessalonians and John in Revelation pick up on this Antiochus language to describe the final man of sin. Jesus too speaks about the abomination of desolation showing us this pattern of history that we are to see and take guard against. This is Antiochus is, is part of, of a, the final blasphemous Antichrist of what he will do at the last day and who Christ will destroy at his coming. But again, the, the point is not figuring out from history who this is. We need to see how his schemes, his spirit, anti-God, anti-church, anti-worship, anti-truth mark his activity because you know what? Many, many antichrists have already come. God has told us beforehand. God has patterned history so that when we look through the eye, a lens of His Word, we might not be surprised at the fiery trials that come. We not, might not be surprised at evil men and evil nations oppressing the people of God. But brethren, to bring it all back to our hope and our confidence, our hope and our confidence is in the fact that our God reigns. That He's using this for good. That He will destroy evil in the end. And that's our hope and confidence because there's one final pattern to redemptive history. We see here that we cannot miss. One day long after Antiochus, a greater evil will happen to God's people. A far greater blasphemy. A far greater desecration. Evil men will not just lay their hands on the physical temple. They will overthrow the real temple. They won't just lay their hands on the people of God. They will lay their hands on the star, star, the bright and morning star of heaven. God Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. They won't just throw the Torah to the ground. They will throw Jesus Christ the way, the truth, the way of truth and life to the ground. But not for 2300 days. Christ was thrown to the ground for 3. Because after 3 the sanctuary was restored to its rightful state. He rose from the dead, and this is what ultimately ironically put an end to all the offerings. 
the one sacrifice of Christ. Even wicked Antiochus foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in that is what ultimately overcome evil was not the strength of a human hand or a human kingdom or a human king, but a divine hand, one who was human and God. As the evil that men and Satan meant for evil, God meant it for good. And so the pattern of history shows us that God uses evil for good. That's the kind of God that He is. And He does this in history. Don't you believe He'll do this in your life as well? That's our hope in times like these. Brother, let's bring this to a conclusion. And I just want to note as we conclude that we're called to respond just like Daniel responded here. In the last two verses, we're told in verse 27, he was to seal up the vision because it refers to the future. That just means keep it safe, Daniel. Take care of it. Guard it until the day it's needed. Aren't we too to prize God's Word? To cling to it? To guard it? To love it? To treasure it? To read it daily? To devote ourselves to knowing it? Then we read in verse 27 that Daniel was overcome and he lay sick for many days. This future of God's suffering of God's people overwhelmed him. He was horrified. He was sick to his stomach. And actually, that's the stimulus for his prayers. We'll see next week. But, but although he was overcome, what was the next thing that he did? He rose and he went about the king's business. He continued to serve the pagan, godless, wicked King Belshazzar. He didn't hunker down in his bunker. He didn't remove himself from the world. He didn't fail to be diligent to his earthly calling. He didn't say, well, you're not a Christian, so I can't serve you. Or this is not a Christian kingdom, so I can't pray and support and seek the welfare of this city. He served the Lord by serving in the common kingdom while never compromising and then using the opportunity given to him in chapter 5 to bear witness to the gospel when God opened that door. And that's the pattern for us as well. Whatever we face, today or tomorrow, we are to strive on ahead. The word of God in our breast Prayer on our lips, knowing that God controls, if He so controls the nations and kingdoms around us and uses the bad and evil ones for His good, He's sovereign over our life as well. And He has the power and He has the love to use horrible things in our life for His good and for His glory if we believe what He has said. This is where we find hope. Not just hope for the last day, but hope in the midst of our present pain as we walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness each and every day as well. We believe what God has said. Amen. Let's pray.